I'm Michael Shoulder. Joining me on this Wavemaker conversation, a woman who for more than three decades has been one of the most important voices in American political life. No, not Hillary Clinton, although we'll get to her in a moment. Joining me now is my favorite political news journalist, my former CNN colleague, Candy Crawley. Candy, welcome to the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. Michael, thank you. I was thinking, boy, who does he have on? That was a, that was a great lead-in. Thanks. Well, that's uh, that's you in my mind. Aww, and and thank you. Uh, listen, this is a this is a real sense of urgency to get you on because now Hillary Clinton's campaign is underway. Marco Rubio's campaign is underway. Many other campaigns are underway. We're going to get to all of them. And already preparing for this interview, I feel a sense of information overload. <laughs> and so you are here to help me with that, to help me, to help us all distinguish what's important from what's not. And you're, I really do think you're a master at that. And I just want, I want a, a quick shout out to the birding community. It's, it's going to seem like a total non sequitur, but in, in, in bird watching, which is, uh, my understanding is it's America's now favorite pastime. Uh, the master illustrator in the greatest bird guides is a, is a, a the late Roger Tory Peterson. And he would, what, what, what made him so great is that in his illustrations, he would capture the most telling details of a species so that if you recognized it in the wild and you only caught a quick glimpse, glimpse of it, you would catch the key detail that could help you identify what species you were looking at. So, I want you to play the role of sort of the birder of American politics. And let's start with Hillary Clinton. And by the way, for all your Legion of fans, we're going to get to your personal life post-CNN. You left CNN after 27 years uh, in December. We're going to get to that. But start. let's start with Hillary Clinton's announcement. What, in your mind, were the most telling details of, number one, her two-minute, 15-second video, and these first couple of days that, again, have already given us information overload on her trip to Iowa. What stands out to me, actually, is the van ride from New York to Iowa. Say what? I, I, you know, and this is, look, it's, it's about everyday Americans, right? Hillary's going to be the champion of everyday Americans. That's clearly her campaign theme. We get it. We get it. But that's the imagery. You know, I, I, I covered Ronald Reagan, and, and at the time, uh, Sam Donaldson was at the White House. And he used to say, you know, Ronald Reagan could say, I am going to release all kinds of uh, carbon into the air. But if he were hugging an eagle while he was saying it, everyone would come away thinking that he was very pro, uh, you know, protecting the climate. So pictures, you know, watch the pictures because the message is so clear in all of it. And the fact that she would take a van, who takes a van to Iowa? People fly into Iowa. We know that. But this kind of, you know, oh, here she is, the the Chick-fil-A or wherever she went, that's designed to say, I am not this exotic creature out of Washington. I understand you. I get you. I'm really just that Chicago girl. I want to hear um, what you're about in these small little groups. Remember when she announced in 2008, she did do it originally by uh, the internet, you know, put out a thing about it. I'm in it to win it. But her first event in Iowa and as well Barack Obama's were mega productions. 
And it, to me, marked the beginning of the end of that Iowa get in the car with the candidate and run around with them and get to know them. Because there were immediately 1,500 people cheering and backdrops and balloons. This is totally the opposite of that. So it's the van that sticks out to me. Like, this is uh, Hillary Clinton's way to say, forget the, the Secretary of State until a little later. Uh, forget the uh, senator. Forget the wife of the president. And here I am, and I'm here to listen to you and your problems because it's not about me. And yet, speaking to a small group, she was outnumbered by journalists. Well, exactly. <laughs> Hard to put that genie back in the bottle, isn't it? I mean, look, she's a superstar. She is. She is a political superstar. And you can say all you want. Well, and I know, for instance, that the the uh, her campaign um, was in touch. Some campaign people were in touch with uh, White House folks to say, hey, what's your pool system? And, you know, Michael, that's because you've got a room that's really small. You have a rotating group of pool members who go in just a tiny, maybe five, six journalists who go in and watch whatever the event is. Uh, generally, you will pilot the noise uh, into a press tent someplace. But uh, the fact is that five people go in and then they come out and tell everybody else what happened. Um, so they and they sh- and they share it with their competitors. Yes, yes, they ca- yeah, exactly. That's that's what the pool is for. Like your first obligation is if you're in the pool is not to uh, your outfit, your company. It's not to CNN or NBC or ABC. It's to the folks that are on the trail. You have to go out and brief them and say, here's what the pictures look like or here's what she said. And there was this really interesting, you know, family, la, 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 that kind of thing. But you can't, you can make the venue small, but you cannot diminish the press corps. And and frankly, with, with so many people now um, who are doing what they're calling citizen journalism, we can talk about that later, but nonetheless, uh, you know, have these phones, have these, there's, there's just no making this um, audience small when it comes to the press corps or when it comes to social media. And I do think that what she is quite satisfied to do is, you know, when she took this van trip uh, uh, to Iowa, they didn't tell anybody really where they were going or where she was stopping to get, you know, lunch or whatever. Didn't do that because they know there's enough people out there to stir up social media saying, oh, my gosh, Hillary just walked in here on the New Jersey Turnpike or, you know, wherever it was. So they're quite happy to have it do that, but they're not going to keep the mainstream press or all those little cameras that people have on their phones away from following her every word and every move. So the ubiquitous phone camera, this is interesting because just to, to bring you back, uh, last week uh, I actually did an episode a couple of weeks ago, an episode on, on the actually the most important job in America, the most powerful job, which is, of course, not president, but the host of The Daily Show. Right. And right. so you've, pro- you've probably followed the, the, you know, the, the discussion over the re- John Stewart's replacement, Trevor Noah, the South African comedian. Right. And, um, you know, a few tweets got him into a bit of trouble. And so we talked about that. And I, and I had uh, actually our former uh, CNN fellow analyst, Pete Dominic, uh, the yeah. stand-up comic. Yeah. Uh, and we had him on and, and we talked talked about how so many comedians now would really like a ban on cell phone cameras in the comedy clubs for this reason. They feel like they can't experiment, they can't take risks, they can't workshop their material and really help help themselves figure out what jokes work and what jokes don't and test the limits 
because everybody's got their cameras rolling. And if they say something over the top, it's going to be spread instantly. Now, in the world of politics, it seems like there's a message, no, bring your cameras on. But at the same time, sometimes that works against you. So what is the role of cell phone cameras today in politics? And is it on balance a positive or negative role? What have you witnessed in the field? Let me say first about comedians and that whole thing about the cell phone. The same is true for many entertainers is that they also don't want their body of work out on the internet because cuts down on sales, right? I mean, you, you know, if you, if you're on a, a countrywide tour and somebody puts your stick on, on, uh, the internet, it, you know, you, you become stale a lot faster. So there's, there's a sort of a, a profit thing in that as well. But as far as, as politics, um, is concerned, I, you know, I am a, a first amendment, uh, you know, devotee. I believe the more information, the more pictures, the more uh, descriptions, the more video, the more audio there is, the better it is for everybody. Having said that, you come up with a lot of clutter and, and, and you become Alice in Wonderland because great big things can become very small and very small things can become great big with a picture. Right. And so, you know, oh, look at this incident with the dog. Look at this incident. And you're thinking, wait, 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 what does this have to do with anything? But that's what takes hold. That's what's clickable. So, you know, you can't fight City Hall here and you cannot fight uh, the cell phone thing. There's not going to be a politician that's going to say, please turn off your cell phones and don't take any pictures of me and don't do this. They've waited for two or three hours in the case of the superstars uh, to um, to be there. So they're not going to tell them to turn off their phones. And even if they did, people wouldn't, they're going to tweet, uh, they're going to hear something and not hear the whole paragraph and tweet out the first sentence. So it, it has, look, it's so my point about being a first amendment junkie is that I, I believe in more information. Um, I, I think that the problem is that it has made everybody, not just politicians, but in particular in this season, politicians so careful about what they say. It is edited so many times in their head that I don't know how often you get to who these politicians are, which is very fundamentally to me, I think, how Americans vote, kind of with their gut. Who is this person? I can't agree with anybody on everything, but I can agree that they come from a place that I think they'll make, you know, the best decisions they can or decisions that are more in line with me. So I think it inhibits the knowing of a candidate to have this much around them, and yet I applaud it. How's that for like a middle-of-the-road answer? I mean, it's, it's, it's a dilemma that I don't know how, um, you know, for good or for bad, it's there and they need to deal with it. And I think the bad is it makes them, uh, it makes them talking point people. Well, okay. So now, but the first telling detail we spoke about and that you noticed was that van, which is an image. It's the image that Hillary Clinton is trying to portray of herself. Now, that is not a telling detail about whether we, the country, would be in good hands or bad hands if she became president. So I want you to look back at your many years of covering campaigns since, what was your first campaign? Uh, my first campaign was the second Reagan campaign, so the, his re-election campaign. Having that as the starting point and going all the way up to today, so now we've got a, a range of candidates who we know are running for president. And the only one we know of for sure on the Democratic side is Hillary Clinton. And we have several on the Republican side. Tell us what telling details you've noticed that do address that point of what kind of person 
is this person as a political leader? What have you noticed over the years covering Hillary Clinton that 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 informs that judgment as well as Marco Rubio, who's a much newer figure, Ted Cruz, obviously Jeb Bush is going to be declaring, uh, 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 Rand Paul. Uh, give us give us a sense of some of the anecdotes that you've come across in the field. Yeah, I mean, the, the one I've obviously covered the longest was Hillary Clinton, uh, certainly as first lady, as senator, um, and as secretary of state, although not as closely, but I interviewed her several times when she was secretary of state. I, I would say when I, when um, Bill Clinton decided to bomb Bosnia, uh, in the middle of the impeachment mess, um, and post-impeachment actually, but just post-impeachment, which was incredibly painful, I think most of all for Hillary Clinton. The CNN said, hey, go on this Northern African trip with Hillary Clinton, because we didn't know whether she it was at the time when we didn't know whether she would run for New York senator or not. And they, and they said, you know, it's a good chance to get to know her. And we didn't know that, you know, Bill Clinton would be bombing Bosnia, which became obviously the story of that time. But it was, there were eight of us about, I would say one, one camera when we wanted it, but there were maybe probably fewer than that number of journalists. Cause it was a really expensive trip. And so, you know, not that many people went. So I thought this will be great. This will show me, the Hillary Clinton that, um, you know, you can't be the Hillary Clinton that's presented to reporters all the time if they're with you 24-7. And we were going to sleep in the desert with, the, you know, in the tents that the king set up in the, you know, Sahara and, and ride camelback and watch the sunrise uh, over the desert, et cetera, et cetera. So there were two moments when I realized that when she is that, that genuinely happy is not something the normal public ever sees Hillary Clinton. We were in a restaurant in Morocco, and uh, they were dancing. And in Morocco, dancing is a is a group affair. You don't. It's not one of those no, I don't dance things. It's like oh no, you get out on the floor and jump around. And somebody came over and got Hillary Clinton. Mind you, this is the first lady of the United States, and went out and put a fez on her head. Um, and she, I looked at her and I thought, wow, there's, she seemed sort of completely free in this really kind of odd environment, frankly, for all of us. And I realized just how thick that plexiglass is between who Hillary Clinton is and who her friends tell us she is, let me put it that way, um, and the, the funny, warm, uh, embracing Hillary Clinton that you always hear intimates talk about um, is not that woman that's in public. Why? I think we all know why. I mean, she, she may be that way to begin with, but she, she certainly has had a, a, her survival skills are great, and she needed them for her time in public life with her husband. So I, 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 I do think that having said, I really like to get to know who these people are, that she's going to be the toughest for a person who has been on the national political scene since 1995. I think she is one of the least known in terms of who is this person, people around to the to the outer world. So I think that's when I saw the shield uh, in her um, because it kind of dropped for a second. 
uh, and she seemed completely different. You gave me one of the most memorable phrases. I, I'm going to walk around with this for the rest of the election for all the candidates. You, you never realize just how thick that plexiglass is. I've never heard it put that way. Yeah, well, it just feels like this. And, and you know, honestly, as a reporter, I always assume there's a certain thickness of plexiglass between me and anybody I'm covering because they're wary. They don't, you know, they're they're on guard, and uh, unless you like, we're friends with them to begin with. Uh, it's uh, it's it's hard to break through that. Some of them, you really feel like you do have moments like that, and that's what the campaign trail. That's what Iowa was for, and New Hampshire was for, because you could get up close and and personal, and sort of get a get a take on this person and let it be reflected uh, in your reporting. Just to to pick up on that word that they're on guard, and you know, maybe partly that's their fault, and partly, you know, my, my teenage son and I were talking about this, and and. How how even at his age, you know, in, in, you know, before getting to high school, a lot of kids are just cynical and their parents are cynical about politics. And you hear this phrase all the time. Oh, they're all bad. All politicians, they're all the same. They're all liars. I never got that sense from your political reporting that you believe that. What is, what is your sense of the character of the general character of the people who choose politics for a profession these days? Um, my, I mean, I think that, you know, it's kind of like journalists or brain surgeons or I think the same sorts of people as a, as a generalization, and we should always be preceded by the word a gross generalization. But I, I do think that uh, people are cynical. And honestly, I think the plexiglass is maybe uh, partially uh, to blame for that uh, because politicians are afraid if they you know, say something, you know, off the cuff, uh, it may be what brings them down. Kind of when, you know, George Romney ran for president, he talked about being brainwashed in Vietnam, meaning uh, PR wise, not he didn't fight in it, but it, and it just, it just, uh, that was the end of his campaign. So there, there is that because it just plays in this endless loop. Um, but I have to say the, Politicians that I meet, and I meet them at the beginning of their career, and the middle of their careers, and the end of their career, that very few of them have I thought, oi, I would never, you know, this guy is out for himself, and he's this, and he's that. I, they come, um, yeah, because they think it would be fun. They like public life. They like, I mean, the good politicians really like to mix it up with people, really are people. You know, Joe Biden is one of the best retail politicians I've ever seen because he loves talking to people. He loves mixing it up. There are many genuine Joe Biden, you know, moments. What you see in public is pretty much what you get in private, uh, although he's even looser in private. But, you know, I think part of the problem here um, is that people look at all politicians the same, which to me is looking at all reporters the same or all anybody the same. It is a microcosm. There are some people up on Capitol Hill I'd never want to invite over to dinner, right? There are people on Capitol Hill who I'm sure are jerks. We know that there's been people up on Capitol Hill who have taken advantage of the system and stolen money. But it's not like, oh, they all steal money or they all do this. It is like you just take a neighborhood and this is a neighborhood where you have good people, bad people, people with good intentions, people who have gone astray. It's not something um, you know, one main thing, if that makes sense. They're not, they're not all one way or the other. I read a fascinating quote here. Uh, in fact, it was in the New York Times today. And frankly, I, I don't know the member of Congress, maybe you do, but uh, it was uh, from a Congressman Bollert, 
of New York. He said, usually senators, no matter how junior, just summon House members to the Senate. But Hillary Clinton came over with her senior staff. This is when she was first elected to the Senate. And for the next two hours, this is a Republican speaking, I was completely mesmerized. That was the beginning of a very positive relation. And then he adds, I find her to be as smart as any person I've ever encountered. Now, that happened without cameras. Yes, she's, yeah, she is, she is smart. And there's no getting around. I think we all know that. But I also think that she, in fact, will play this up because we know that people say they're tired of this partisanship in Washington. It plays well as a campaign issue. We've had three presidents who have tried to change the tone in Washington, uh, Bill, Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama. It hasn't worked. But nonetheless, we know that as a campaign issue, saying we've got to get along, we've got to get something done. It's a good campaign issue. Hillary Clinton, um, if you talk to Tom DeLay, right, who you know left uh, Congress under a cloud, who was as partisan a guy uh, I mean, he was a, you know, they called him the hammer for good reason, because he kept his Republicans in line. He he worked with Hillary uh, on a bill, and I think it had to do with adoption. I, I, I Don't hold me to that, but I think it was a bill about making adoptions easier or something or other. And, you know, talk to John McCain, talk to uh, um, Lindsey Graham. They have very nice things to say about Hillary Clinton because she went up there and she was not the hot dog. Everybody thought she was going to be being followed by Secret Service, which she was. But she made—this is why I think this her campaign may well work. It's similar to her listening campaign for U.S. senator, is that she can pull in— all those perks of power and uh, and use them behind the scenes to get money, you know, her campaign to get money or just the name goes a long way and support and this and that. But she is very good at seeing an issue that she can work with people on. And you will find many Republicans telling you that. So there is a, you know, in the end, she's kind of a wonk. I mean, she's a bit of a policy wonk. This is not, she's, she's, you know, her campaign skills are mm, moderate at best. Uh, she's, as everybody says, she's nothing like her husband. She isn't. Her husband is a star on the campaign trail. He loves it. Uh, you get the feeling it is not her first love. Uh, she wants to go do something. Um, and she's, you know, very steeped in policy. But she also was able to make a lot of friends uh, up at the Capitol out of skeptics who thought, well, here comes the first lady and she's going to be a U.S. senator. So, you know, there is lots to, um, you know, recommend her even by Republicans who were impressed by how she, you know, plays well with others. Um, and yet she still strikes this wildly partisan public um, opinion because in the end, she's also a hardball political player. She knows what needs to be done. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Back to the conversation. Coming back to your your love of the First Amendment and more information, <laughs> and yet at the same time we're overloaded with information. You know, one of the big issues is obviously campaign spending, and uh, I don't, I have not been able to trace the original source. Maybe you have of this two point five billion dollar goal that uh, Hillary's campaign apparently has. That would be a combination of money that her campaign raises and 
and outside sources that are not tied to her campaign but support her. Like PACs and, and all that exactly. kind of stuff. Exactly. And this is all, yeah. and, I, and ironically, you know, a lot of this is driven by not all of it, but some of it is, has been sort of, you know, certainly the Citizens United case in the Supreme Court has had a synergistic effect here and, and opened the, the doors to even more money. And ironically, Citizens United was, that was a, a nonprofit company that was uh, a nonprofit that was producing an anti-Hillary film. And that's how that whole case started. Right. Can they air that film right before an election that she was running in? And um, I- I'm just curious about your thoughts is that, you know, when you're on the campaign trail, you know, we know that money has a big impact. We know it's extremely expensive and the money advantage is huge in politics. Where do you see that, Candy Crowley, and where have you seen that since the days of Reagan? Take us back from the days of Reagan to now, when there's been such an astronomical jump in campaign spending. Where do you see the impact that money has? In the primaries. Let me, let me, let me say two things first. It, it, the, the first is, don't worry about either of the major party candidates, okay? They're both going to have bundles of money. And I mean that both literally and figuratively, but they'll both have campaigns in the billions by the time it's all over. It will be the most expensive race in history because it always is the next time. It just gets more and more and more expensive. No, you know, the spending doesn't go down. You know, there's no, you know, deflation in politics when it comes to money. So, but whoever the nominees are, they will have, they will be able to match each other dollar for dollar. Um, But where it matters really is in the nuts and bolts of primary campaigns. If you are a well-heeled candidate, this is why so much is made of how much Jeb Bush has raised, uh, for instance. Because if you are the candidate with money or with friends who have PACs, which are political action committees, which under law you're not supposed to coordinate with PACs, but all they have to do is see where you're running ads and they can go someplace else. But direct coordination, not supposed to happen. Um, so you've got PACs raising money for Jeb and he's going around saying, hey, you know, contribute to the party or contribute to this or contribute to me because they are to individual campaign contributions to a candidate are limited. I don't I I'm going to say $2,300, but I really, it seems to change every year, but it's not very much in the grand scheme of things. Um, So if you're Jeb Bush, gosh, you could right now, if you wanted to, put up uh, ads in South Carolina. But more importantly, when the Iowa caucuses open in uh, January, when they have the Iowa caucuses next January, Jeb Bush, if he's in, will be able to put up ads in South Carolina, which is a big firewall state for Republicans. So if he's looking ahead thinking, eh, I don't look great in Iowa because I'm, you know, they see me as too moderate or, oh, you know, New Hampshire, they love to undo whatever Iowa does. So, you know, he can put up ads in New Hampshire. He can open, uh, you know, the, the foot soldiers. He can open offices. He can pay them. He doesn't have to say, please come and work for free. Uh, he, I mean, that is all that stuff is the coin. I mean, money to me is much more the coin of the realm um, in a primary. Except as we get closer to, and this is way in advance, but as we get closer to the general election and the floodgates are open and, you know, any company or group not affiliated formally with the candidate can put out whatever information they want. And it might be information or disinformation or just clutter or noise. Right. I mean, I know 
that your smartphone, as we got into the later years, you know, of you at CNN, you know, think back to your Reagan days and how much information would come into your sort of, you know, your your cone <laughs> and think about how much info. Tell us how much information would you be bombarded with? Did you have any way to filter it? And how did you decide uh, systemically what to ignore and what to pay attention to? Well, you know, the problem as a reporter, now, this, now let's let's start where we are right now or, or the last campaign, and that is that you cannot afford not to look at something that comes into your email box. You really can't. I mean, because you never know. I will give you a, a quick, for instance, um, in 2008, when John Edwards was running, I have my years right. So I remember the days and not the years. I'm at that point. Um, but in 2008, um, you know, six or seven o'clock at night, the Edwards campaign put out this kind of harmless email. You know, you thought, oh, and then you thought, whoa. And I looked at it and it said, John and Elizabeth Edwards will be holding a news conference in North Carolina tomorrow at 10 or 11 or whatever it was. Well, ding, 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 alarm bells off. What? Elizabeth? Like, I don't remember Elizabeth being at a news conference with him. What's going on? Something big is going on. And then, you, you know, as you went through the night calling people, it, it, we learned that her cancer had recurred and et cetera, et cetera. And they had the news conference the next day saying, hey, he was staying in the race. But yes, um, her cancer had recurred. So you can't, even the most harmless looking thing from a pack, um, you know, if they're going to put up a big old ad buy in California for a Democrat, it says to you, wow, when did Democrats ever have to? Well, they did at one point, but it, Democrats in recent years uh, don't really have to advertise that heavily in, in California. They go out there and raise a bunch of money because it's pretty reliably Democratic state. So who puts up ads uh, in California? Does that mean he's in trouble? Uh, or does that mean they got more money than they know what to do with? So you have to, you know, you 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 can't not see it. Um, you can't afford to not look at it. I, I tended to put to direct um, official Democratic, uh, like from the campaign, from the Democratic National Committee, uh, from uh, PACs that I knew supported particular Democrats. And I immediately, divert, you know, make up a rule and divert them into a single file so that I could you know, at least get my mind so that you weren't like first looking at something about from the Democratic National Committee and then looking at something from a Republican candidate because it tended to make me, I'm sort of linear. So I like to see all my stuff in a row. So that helped. But I don't, I, you know, but having said that, 95% of it is useless. Frankly, we in the audience often feel like 95% of what we are hearing and reading is useless, but we want mm -hmm. to find that 5%. And so, I mean, how many, how many emails do you, did you keep track? How many emails would you typically get uh, during the last presidential campaign on a given day? I bet if I, I bet over 300. Because it was at one point it made me cry. <laughs> I just said I can't, I can't. You know, you're running around, right? You, it's just ridiculous. Um, so things do slip through the cracks, which is nice that they're sending them out to everybody else. So you know, you you know the ones that are to you personally, right? Um, so those 
you, you know, you know in any email account, oh, there's so-and-so, and that's a private message. So, you know, obviously I would hit those. Um, and, and the other part is I just hoped that and knew that I was sort of backed up. Um, and, and to a certain extent, uh, you can get as much news as you want unfiltered because you can sign up for all the press releases from whatever campaign you want. Um, and go through them yourself, or you can find whoever it is that you trust to filter them for you, uh, whether it's a website or a TV uh, outlet or whatever. But it's it's difficult, um, but it is also, I mean, remember John McCain when he fired all his staff and because and, he had no more money and, it, you know, it looked like he was going to, like, bow out of the race? He did that in an email. Not a word of that until it came out in an email. So it's like you you have yet another, and it's one of my great worries about journalism, actually, is that you're so busy treading water that it's hard to swim forward on a story, you know, you, you know because you, you just get diverted all the time by, well, I got these 300 emails and I need to quick go through them, except for the candidates speaking, except for they really want me to be on air live or they want me to write a blog or they they, they need to up my, you, you know, tweeting or, you know, so you, you know, to me, you, you, you do, there are many days when you're treading water knowing there's something else out there uh, that you're, you know, and you try in between all this stuff to call somebody and, you know, maybe break a little news and all that, but it gets more and more difficult. So given that, given that challenge, and, and again, you have always been the master at finding just the, just noticing that little detail here or there, which gives me an insight into what really happened on a particular day. And, uh, and by the way, in a, in a few moments, I want to get into whether you are now that you are not working 24 seven on that constant news cycle. Let me ask you right now, are you experiencing withdrawal symptoms? Have you had to go to a therapist to deal with this? <laughs> Not for that. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, I, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have withdrawal symptoms at the moment, but I also went pretty cold turkey. I mean, I once I left in January, I didn't I um, wanted a, a clean break like I need to, you know, breathe in, breathe out. Um, so I didn't really. I'm a news junkie, but I didn't really go there because I knew I get on the internet to find out one thing. And five hours later, you know, I've opened, you know, a billion sites because I think, oh, what's that? You know, so I need to kind of, you know, walk away from it. And that's what I did. As it heats up, maybe. Um, but I must say, I, I've, I've done the, you know, get on the plane, get off the plane, get on the bus, get off the bus, go in the hotel room, get out of the hotel room, get back on the bus. I've done that. And I did that since, you know, Reagan basically and full time since Dole in 96. So you did that. So, so as I have to say, you know, every, every parent I know who has ever confronted you uh, or has ever had the opportunity to meet you has, to, you know, must ask. You are a mother of how many now grown children? Um, four. I have two um, sons, and I have a stepdaughter and a stepson, who remain mine. Even I'm, I am single. I'm, I'm divorced, but uh, they were too much a part of me um, when their dad and I broke up. So they're still totally in my life. Like, <laughs> like, like, as in, boy, can't you give this guilt to your blood children? You know, when I say you have to come over here and bring those kids. So, so four essentially. 
while you were a, a, a for part of that period a single mom right. and and you were and you were, you just said on the bus off the bus on the plane off the plane uh how how were you able to to raise and I understand one of one of your kids is now no longer a kid he's a neurosurgeon another one is is a musician uh it sounds like you've raised some healthy <laughs> productive members of society and so how would you do it? I mean, literally, I remember the last time we spoke right before you moderated uh, uh, the Barack Obama Mitt Romney debate. Um, you know, you, you know, we were talking a little bit about about just just how often you would arrive on a location for a story at midnight you know, and then, boom, you'd be up four in the morning. You know, how often were you reporting sleep deprived? Oh. <laughs> A hundred percent of the time. I'm still sleep deprived. I mean, we laugh because when, when uh, I have a girls group of, of correspondents and we uh, probably, you know, every six weeks get together to swap, you know, stories and all that kind of stuff. And they laugh because most of January and half of February, I was fairly sick. Not like, oh my gosh, there's something really wrong, but just can't get out of bed. It's one flu or the other flu. And they said, I think this is you catching up on, you know, 30 years of never getting enough sleep. And it really sort of felt like that. I, I'd get up and get a cup of coffee and I drink, you know, high test, uh, you know, espresso. And then I think I really got to go back and lie down. So I think it built up, but you know, adrenaline is great. You know, it is, it keeps you going. You don't know you're tired when you're doing something you love. And that's the bottom line. For for 27 years or more than 27 years, you've had the routine that they put a medical residence through, except it never <laughs> stopped for you, right? Exactly. Well, having had a son who went through me- medical residency, but it didn't. But let's remember that not every moment is, I mean, I used to have, you know, when I had withdrawal was after a presidential election and, you know, after the inauguration, which is, you know, mid-January, late January, 21st, whatever it is, um, I, then I was like you know, chopped liver. Like, yeah, no, we're good. I mean, everybody went through this. Please don't talk politics anymore. And so I'd sit around thinking, well, they don't want me on the air. They don't want to talk about this. You know, so that that's what I had withdrawal was suddenly they thought, oh boy, give us a, a good story elsewhere. Give us a, you know, uh, something that we can cover um, that's not political. In Washington, that's tough to do. But, you know, so it wasn't constant. And and before the kids went off to college, I had the the, the uh, four-day rule, which is like four nights out. My, You know, the rules were I would only leave for four nights at a time. And my mother or their dad had to be available to come to my house to be with them while I was gone. Um, and they kept with it. I mean, I did that because I thought, you know, and then I had to be home for, you know, a couple of weeks and then go out. Now that stopped when they went off to college. I said, fine, I will do it 24 seven, put me on the plane and I will come back after the election. Um, so I, I did do it then and that was tiring. Um, but I, I was not, I didn't do it when the kids were young. Or when they were teenagers, especially when they were teenagers. And, and I know, you, and I know you were constant, look, constantly screening videotape, writing, and I, and I know you had a rule about when you could take a call from your kids. <laughs> the three B rule, um, which it, it, honestly, when I first started at CNN, and the kids were quite young, but they were, um, you know, kindergarten and first grade. I think I, I again. 
the, the years go by, don't they? But uh, I, whenever they would get home from school is when they wanted to call you, right? They wanted to touch base because that's what kids do. And you want them to call you because you want to know, you know, how's the day, da, 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 everything okay, here's what you got for dinner, and so-and-so will, you know, make you this, don't forget your homework, etc. But the problem is, as you know, that certainly in those days at CNN, yes, it was 24-7, but long about 3.30 when they got home is when I was always crashing on a package for the 6 o'clock. I was either right in the middle of writing it, if I had a if I had a package on that night, or right in the middle of still talking to the last person. So inevitably, that's when I got a kid call. And sometimes it was fine because I didn't have something on, or it was all, the piece was already done, or whatever, and I'd take it. But mostly, it always seemed like they'd call, and I was going to miss my slot, right? So I would, we, they'd go, Crowley, kid call, and we established, I said, give them the 3B rule, and the 3B was, is it broken, burning, or bleeding? And if it was, I'd get on the phone right away. If it was not, I would call them back when, at my first chance. So that, that sort of filtered out the, hey, mom, how are you? And so-and-so yelled at me today at school so that I would have the time to finish it and then call them back. And it worked very well, actually. And I only had two, yes, one, yes, it's broken, and uh, one, yes, it's bleeding. So two hospital visits. And, and so you've produced... Uh and maybe here's here's something we can learn from politicians and and not just Hillary. And we do need to talk about some of the other people who are front and center right now. But you know, one thing that strikes me about every great story about a successful politician is their resilience. Everyone loses. In fact, I was just rereading the story of when Bill Clinton lost his seat as governor of Arkansas and then came back. Mm-hmm. He, he, he apologized to the people. He said, I've heard you. I know what you didn't like. And, and I'm going to come back and improve. And everybody loses. Hillary lost to Barack Obama. She thought she had it nailed and she lost. Right. And uh, now I don't, has Marco Rubio lost anything? I'm not sure. Uh, no, he's, uh, he came from the state Senate, uh, and no, he, he hasn't. And then he, he ran for, uh, U S Senate. Was it two years ago, four years ago? Yeah. He's hadn't been there long. As a parent, I'm, I'm fascinated with this and, uh, and for ourselves as adults, right? Resilience and, you know, and there's so much talk now about grit and resilience and how important that is in life. Absolutely. And by the way, even if they haven't lost an election, Something has happened. I mean, you look at Joe Biden, right? He had this horrific thing, a horrible, a tragic car accident. The uh, right when he won during the kind of transition period to the U.S. Senate, um, his wife and baby daughter uh, were killed in a car accident around Christmas time, and his two sons who survived were in the hospital for a very long time. Big things change you. Sometimes with a politician, it really is a a, a horrible defeat. Uh, Sometimes they just have a human story. It changes you. Uh, And I have to tell you that to me, those are the most interesting. The people who have lost something, be it an election or something else, are far more interesting stories because how you deal with loss, how you deal with pain tells tells you so much more than how you deal with success. 
please, everybody can deal with success. Um, and I used to beg to be on, like, particularly during primary time, I would, because basically they'd say, who do you want to cover? And I, so I'd start out with someone that I thought was interesting. But the minute I, I remember distinctly when it was very clear, I think it was the Wisconsin primary, um, where we were pretty sure that after it, Howard Dean would pull out. And remember, Howard Dean was the big splash. He was he was going to win, man. And he, he came in second or third in Iowa, and it was sort of downhill from there. I wanted to be in Wisconsin for that primary, and I wanted to follow him because I knew he was going to, that he was going to uh, withdraw. And I thought that was more interesting. Then when John, I knew John, I said, I want to I swap over to John, you know, Dean would withdraw. And then next, you saw them sort of falling. He said, let me go do that. It's a better story, and it tells you more about the people. And the success stories, you know, they come out, thank you very much, on to so-and-so. You know, that's, it's okay, but you can always catch up with the person who won. But to me, watching someone fall and how the grace or lack thereof that they deal with it is fascinating and tells you much more about a person than, than the guy who's taken the victory lap. Did, did you, as a parent, actually weave some of those those how you fall and get back up stories? Always. And, and, share, and, and, and did you share them with your children as life lessons? Absolutely. Or you did. Like, give me an, give me an example. Well, I, you know, let me give you a not necessarily a political loss story, but a loss story. Um, I did a series uh, before the first Gulf War um, on what what is it like to go to war. It was sort of split up. What's it like to you, you know to kill someone when that's you know you're you know you're raised that that's you never do that, but then you go to war and guess what? Um, all that you know. And now that you've come home, what lingers? What do you still? So we did World War II vets, and but we did all elected or public officials, right? Um, who were in one way or another watching this the, the lead up to the first Gulf War. And one of the um, people that I interviewed was Charlie Rangel, right? Uh, the longtime congressman from Harlem, um, he was in the Korean War, and he got all these medals for bravery and courage. And I was in his office. I said, wow, you know, look at these. And I said, so you're a hero. And he said, you know, he said, we got caught behind enemy lines. Here's what happened. We got caught behind enemy lines. So they were in North Korea, right, behind enemy lines. He said, we were getting fired on right and left for days in our foxhole. And everyone who had a rank above me had been killed. And so the one thing I knew was if we stayed there, we were all going to die. So I picked up the map and the compass and I said, come on, men, follow me. And he said, we walked back across, you know, we made it back across into South Korea. And that's what this is for. And I said, that's, you know, what an amazing story. And he said, yeah, but sometimes I just wonder how many heroes are there out there that just went the wrong way. And I told that story to my kids because, first of all, it was enlightening to me. But second of all, because saying, you know, the heroes that you see are nothing compared to the heroes you don't know about. That, that, that being a hero is not always in the result. It's in the act, you know, so it's not the public acclamation. It's not that it's, it's, it's who you are inside. Like most everything, is there a hero inside, regardless of whether anybody else ever knows about it? And, and that's, you know, to me, that's a life lesson. I always thought, you know, that person that wrote the book about everything I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten, everything I needed to know, I learned listening to people. 
So I didn't have to have that experience that Charlie Rangel had, but I got it when he told me that. You know, I just, those kinds of stories um, stick with you. Hillary Clinton, that's a survivor. Come on, look at what this woman has gone through in public, right? And look at how, if you, let's just set aside anything you think about her policies and what direction she wants to take the country. Let us look at a woman who was hurt to the core of her heart by what her husband did in public um, and watched it play out over the course of a year and people talking about it. I remember her once saying, my goodness, if I, if I read these stories about me, I wouldn't like me either. You know, and yet, where is she? She's likely to be and you know, probably will be the Democratic nominee for president. Why? Because she's a survivor. What does that tell you? Like, look at that story. That story is about persevering. It is about keeping your own center. Maybe it's a lot about the plexiglass, you know, putting, you know, that um, thing in front of you that helps you be immune to the arrows headed your way. And if that's what you have to do to survive, then by God, then you do it. But you get up and you get out of that bed and you march on with the plexiglass or not. But because this isn't the last act, you know, you have to move forward. I think she, you know, when you look at it is, you know, is a political survivor. And therein is the story. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Back to the conversation. So now what is the equivalent compelling story, let's say, in Jeb Bush's life? Now, Mark Rubio, we could talk about his parents, right? Because he came from very humble beginnings, immigrant beginnings. Right. A, a child of immigrants. And I, th- I think you will, will see this play out. I mean, Jeb has had... Um, a, a troubled daughter. I don't know what the status of that is. I'm, you know, I know that he has appeared in uh, court with her. I, th- um, I'm not going to say what I, I can't remember. But I think that there has been, um, you know, trouble with a teenager. There has been, um, you know, he's married to um, uh, a woman from Mexico, so he has a, you know, a blend, a blended family in that very American way. Um, and, and so there's, there's, you know, he has a family that has known both defeat and victory. So he he needs to paint that story. You know, it's one of the things that I think will be fascinating about Jeb Bush. Um, I remember once talking uh, to George Bush. Actually, I think it was in my last interview I did with him. And we were talking off camera about Jeb and whether Jeb would run. This is, I'm sorry, this is George the father or George the brother? Jo- I'm sorry, George W., the, the, son, the brother. Sorry, the, the brother of Jeb. Older brother of Jeb, George. Last, the last President Bush. And um, I said, so is he going to run? He said, I don't know. And, da, da, da. and then he began to talk to me about his growing up, which I'd, we'd had several conversations about this over the years. And, and I, he said, you know, growing up, it was all because he, he said, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't you know, it's not like we call, call each other, you know, all the time. And he said, you know, growing up, we were almost like two separate families. Um, and he said, you know, there was, there was George W was the firstborn and then they had Robin, their daughter, um, and Robin died of leukemia at four. Um, and so there's, there's a huge gap between George W and Jeb. 
um, and the rest of his brothers and a sister. Um, and so he said, you know, you can't like when you're I couldn't go out and have a beer with my brother. It was too young. So they really did have kind of he felt a separateness from Jeb, which is only now, I think, through politics and, you know, liking the same business and all that. Um you know, obviously it's gotten close over the years, but not in the way people kind of view it. And so it's interesting to me, and it'll be interesting to watch Jeb, because I think more than anything, Jeb has to prove that he is new, right? That he is about something new. Elections about the future, et cetera, et cetera. But, but if, you, if your last name is Bush, you have to prove what is new about you without saying, yeah, and I had nothing to do with my father, and my brother, because he did, because obviously as adults, they're a close family. Hillary, on the other hand, even though you might say, well, gee, um, but she's old too, right? I mean, in the sense of she's been on the scene forever and she's got the last name of Clinton and they've been mm-hmm. there and blah, blah, blah. Yes. But what's new about Hillary? She'd be the first woman. So she gets a lot of new off that, Right. But Jeb doesn't. So he's got to say, here's what I'm about. Here's what I did in Florida. Here's, you know, here are my new ideas um, while still having that kind of family legacy. I think it's going to be quite the balance for him. And, I, you know, they need to tell um, what their defining uh, moments were. Sometimes they don't know. I know that sounds crazy, but I remember... Um, George Bush saying to me, and this was when I covered him as governor and we thought he was probably going to run. And we were talking about when Robin died and, and, um, George was left at home a lot and they went to the East coast to, um, see if they could get help for Robin. Uh, w says that when his mother came home, he felt like the best thing he could do for her. Like he saw his job as trying to make her laugh. Right. And I thought, oh, wow. Remember that famous moment when somebody asked George W. a really serious question about a war or something that was going on? Um, And he came over and answered to the pool. And then he said, now watch this shot. Right. And I thought back to that moment that he told me about. I felt like my job was to make my mother laugh, saying this kind of tells you how he got molded into this person that kind of, even in this most serious of situations, is looking for a way to lighten it. You know, I don't think he, you know, and he hated psychotherapy and all that kind of jazz, but I thought that was a fascinating insight into who he is and why he sometimes seemed to some people inappropriate. You know, but and but it all comes back to that this question. I'm I'm fixated on this phrase you got from Charlie Rangel because uh, this is the, it's almost a mission statement, and it's a question we have to answer for ourselves as voters. I picked up the map and the compass and said, "Come on, guys! Come on, men! Follow me!" Okay, so like, come on, Americans! Follow me! Right? You know, we, we we so we want the details and and you know. Overcoming personal adversity or political adversity helps give us a sense of who will we trust? Who do we want to pick up the map and the compass and say, follow me? Absolutely. It's absolutely it. And and to do that, you know, there is an X factor when people decide who they're going to vote for, whether it's the last minute. I used to think there were no last minute 
voters until I talk to my sons who are last minute voters. I mean, you know, making up their minds, you know, when you say, well, three people, but you know, 5% of people are undecided and you think, my God, the election's tomorrow. How could they be undecided? I think there actually are people, but I think that either before the voting booth or in the voting booth, there is an X factor that people think, I trust this person and I like this person. And even though this person disagrees with me on the following eight subjects, I believe in their uh, philosophy, if you will, because we all know that no matter what you propose you're going to do, you got to work with that other branch of government and sometimes with the third branch of government. So, you know, I like this person. There's that X factor. I trust this person. And I think the X factor is in the personal stories, even when, like, I thought the Romney campaign, uh, Mitt Romney has a great story. And it's not, oh, I grew up in Michigan and we were fairly wealthy and my guy was, and my father was a, you know, became rich as a car guy and then he ran for president. It wasn't that at all. In the, in the um, convention, the Republican convention, they had these people, it was in his, his, I want to say it was in his Mormonism, but that's not what I mean. It was in the, it was in his faith, regardless of what his faith was and what he did for people. And they had this couple come out and this is what, you know, not in prime time. So it didn't get a lot of pickup, but these are stories you hear from Mitt Romney's friends. And they told the story of, I believe a 12 or 13 year old son who was in the hospital dying and Mitt would come to see him. He was a family friend. He'd come to see him. And he asked Mitt, he said to Mitt, I want to, who's a lawyer, I want to, I want to write a will. I want to give away some stuff, but I want to write a will. So Mitt shows up the next time with a legal pad and said, okay, let's write your will. Right. And okay, I want my skateboard to go here and all of that. And I'm thinking that is an amazing story because a mom couldn't do that. And a dad couldn't do that. And Mitt Romney got it. He got that it was important for a 12 year old whose life was ending to do it. That's to me, like, tell us that stuff, you know, but they, they're Romney was not good at that, (laughs) you know? And I didn't think the campaign was, I mean, you know, it's almost too late by the time the convention rolls around. But I think there are so many stories that people would relate to and say, oh, I like that guy. He's not really the 47% guy. Worth telling, worth looking at, tells you something about his worldview. But then there's this myth. These stories you're telling me tell me something, whether it's Biden's personal loss, uh, GW's personal loss, and how he used, you know, humor to cope with that and his early years, or whether it's this... You know how, how Mitt Romney handled somebody else's loss and the compassion he showed. That tells me something about the character of these candidates. It still doesn't tell me whether when they pick up the map and the compass and look at Iran or look at the Islamic State or look at the uh, the wealth gap between the top 25% of Americans and the bottom 25%, it doesn't tell me where that compass is going to point. How do we figure that out? And how important is that in relation to these other telling stories? Look, it's important, but I I have told, you you know, people say, I don't know who to vote for. And generally, this is usually my children. Um, You know, I'll say, listen, pick three things that matter to you. Pick four things that matter to you. And find out whether it's, first go to their websites and see what they say about, 
how to extricate yourself from Iraq, just going back to, you know, let's go to 2008, how to to get out of Iraq. Um, You know, you look at what they've said before, you look at what they're saying now, you look at their plan. Then you go to a a place like Red State, which is very, you know, a Republican website, or you go to a HuffPost uh, to get kind of, you know, there's there's no, no small amount of places you could go on TV or elsewhere to get takes on this. I always say get your own take first and then listen to other people. So you got to get somebody that lines up with those important things. But if you're looking for someone that lines up with the 900 things on your mind, forget it. It's not going to happen. Not even your wife does that for you. So don't look for that in a candidate. Get those three or four things. Look it up. You know, what you just said, take the three or four things that matter to you. And again, with the deluge of information, you know, if we, you know, in tennis, there's an expression, you play the ball, don't let the ball play you. Right. So if we just let ourselves get, you know, just, you know, every ball is coming onto our side and we're looking at every one, you know, you've got to sort of keep your eye on the ball that matters. And, and so maybe this should translate as to for all the young journalists who are listening to this, you know, it's very hard because you get into a large news network and suddenly, you know, either everything matters or only one thing matters for a whole week. And, you know, but it's the persistence in taking those three or four things that matter and continuing to investigate that line of questioning that really produces the great insights. And so what would your advice be to young journalists, even I would say to citizen journalists who are, who are getting more and more exposure, you know, if you're starting out in the field now, and by the way, if you've been in the field for 30 years and just want a little refresher, what would your advice be as a journalist? (laughs) To covering something? Yes. To, to, to covering specifically the election season and how to choose what stories, what limited number of stories you're going to to attack. Um, now, for a journalist, it's different because it can't be what they think are the four most important stories, right? It has to be uh, what, you know, you're, you're playing to a general audience here. What in general is the important thing that happened today or tomorrow or this week or, you know, whatever it happens to be? I would say my, my first thing would be to try to, to first come to, in your own mind, what you think the story is. This is as old as boys on the bus. You don't want groupthink. You don't want, you know, somebody told me that during the debates, all of them, um, that more more people who were there to cover the debate and were in the press room were watching the, the Twitter account than listening. So it's like playing the game telephone, right? Where by the time the, the secret goes around the circle, it's, you know, it's a totally different thing. So you have to trust yourself in picking out what that story is not oh well you know this is trending and that's trending now this is tough to do because you got editors and you got all that kind of stuff by by the way by the way one of the great great living conservationists uh, one of the fathers of the field of conservation edward o wilson um his he wrote a book called letters to a young scientist and he said one of the things you want to do from a very early stage is watch where the crowd is and run in the other direction. Well, exactly. Like, because what's the point? The crowd's already there. You don't really need to go there. Find something else. But, you, you know, you're dealing with editors, too. So even if you're covering the same story, let's cover it just a little bit differently. And by the way, I mean, I think the other thing I I would tell to citizen journalists and to 
people who do journalism as a profession, and that is, could you listen to the whole speech? And could you at least listen to the graph out of which you take the soundbite? Because we all know you can take things out and put them on and have that be the truth. Um, there are lots of facts that go out that don't taken together. It's, it's the facts that are left out um, that help mold a story, right? So you got to be really, uh, you, you know, understand what you're writing about and understand and put in context. If you're going to take out 30, you know, 20 seconds, at least give it some context. I think we lose that a lot too. So context. So final question now, again, for your true, your legion of fans. Uh, so you're, you're, you've been out of CNN for a few months now. You've had a chance to taste life as a, as a citizen. Uh, you've already gotten sick a few times because the adrenaline wasn't pumping enough to keep you healthy. Uh, you know, what are, what are you doing now? And, uh, what, what might we expect from you next? Well, I gave myself six to nine months before I thought, okay, now what? Um, I knew when I left CNN, I want to do something new, someplace new. That was just, I, I knew, I, I, I believe, I know that there's another chapter. Um, I haven't written it yet. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. I've talked to book publishers. I think that's, you know, one direction. But there are, th- thankfully, uh, blessedly, offers from people. Um, but I've said to all of them, I gotta, I gotta, you know, make my, settle my mind here, um, for six to nine months and do some scuba diving and see those grandchildren and, you know, recenter. Um, it's, it's pretty hard to, you know, walk away from the one thing you had some skill at (laughs) and then think, okay, you know, can I take that skill and put it someplace else? Or would I be happy taking that skill and putting it some, you know, doing the same thing somewhere else. So I haven't, you know, I mean, I'm doing a lot of speech speeches. I've done things like this, um, for friends, uh, and have, you know, completely enjoyed it because it's kept me, um, I, I did a, a, a day of talk radio for my hometown, uh, radio station, Camo X in St. Louis, which was great fun. Um, so I'm just, do, you know, there are things that keep me, in that loop, but nothing I'm, I am wanting to do permanently. So it's like dabbling. And then, you know, talk to me in September. I think I'll have made up my mind. I think. Unless it's more scuba diving. So you really scuba dive? I really do. So you scuba dive and I know you meditate. Which one do you get more satisfaction out of? I do. Uh, meditation, I think, has uh, saved me in so many ways. Um, and I love it. And yeah, I, um, five, I try for six days a week, um, to do an hour of something. Um, sometimes it's like, okay, let's go outside and just walk. And other days it's horrible things involving weight machines and ellipticals and <laughs> things like that. Um, so, so, so yeah. and, and when I called you yesterday, when I called you yesterday, I said, Mike, can you call, call me back in an hour? I'm just about to begin my workout. I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty impressive. Impressive, so you meditate, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you meditate, you work out for an hour, how many days a week? Uh, six. Try for six. Sometimes it's five. You scuba dive, which you obviously will have more time to do now because you're right. not on the campaign trail. So I guess my my final question to you is, do you think you have, as a result of leaving the 24-7 grind, is your life expectancy today 
longer than it was <laughs> if you had so. stayed on that track. I mean, you know, more than once, and Michael, yeah, I'm sure you did this too. You thought this job is going to kill me. <laughs> just, and not because the physical toll, just the psychic and, and the stress level and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's funny because you need to have adrenaline. You, you need to be a stress junkie. You, you need to be a deadline person. All those kind of things that, that make you, I think, um, I, that I think reporters all have in common, that news people all have in common. But boy, it is, it is, a, it's the knocking your head against the wall thing. Like once I stopped it, I, I sort of realized what that toll was. Not to say I wouldn't do it again, you know, or wouldn't go back to it in some form. Um, but I highly recommend, you know, breaks. So you stop knocking your head against the wall. So remember I said <laughs> final question. Of course I didn't mean it. So the final, final question, the final, final question is, and, and this has to do with with a theme we've talked about today, but it's it's struggle. I haven't asked you about your own biggest struggle that you've overcome, which will obviously make the Candy Crowley story more compelling than it ever was. And and by by the way, uh, just to let you know, you know, a number of weeks ago I interviewed one of my, uh, one of the, really the most influential people these days in the field of child development and, and even adult development. Her name is Carol Dweck. She's a psychology professor at Stanford, and she's she's written a book called Mindset, and it's based on 40 years of research. And, and what makes some people willing to take on challenges and struggle through difficulties and others shy away from the, or, or just fall apart during difficult times. And her conclusion after studying children for many years is that the ones who fall apart have what's called, what she calls a fixed mindset, meaning you're, a, you're born with whatever skills and talents you have and, and anything that any failure is going to show that you just don't have it as opposed to what she calls a growth mindset, which you can actually cultivate. And the growth mindset is, I know through hard work and practice, even if I don't become a star, I'm going to certainly improve. So, uh, you know, you clearly as a journalist have a growth mindset, but tell me, she says, struggle is something you should embrace. If you are struggling, you are growing. So tell me what has been, if you don't mind sharing, what has been the biggest struggle of your life? And how has it impacted you? Boy, now, you know, you have to stump me with the last one. I mean, I haven't, which I will tell you one story about struggling, okay? And and that is when I was a, a single mom, there was not a lot of money, okay? And when I say that, it is with great reverence for uh, minimum wage work. And I actually worked my first TV job or actually radio job was a minimum wage job. And I made, you know, some, and then the minimum wage was ridiculously low. So, but when I had the kids, there were times when I thought, where's the rent coming from? Where's the rent? Can can I get, you know, can I write this check now and they'll get it three days later. And by that time I'll put this kind of money in the bank and then I won't, you know, I juggled checks a lot when the kids were growing up and it, it, you know, my friends used to say, you know, I, I had the, I'm going to be a bag lady with my press tags and a grocery cart in Lafayette Park across in the White House. I just, every, I was so scared about running out of money or not having enough money to pay the rent, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, so then obviously things got better over time and I'm not struggling financially now or any of that. And, and I've been lucky enough to, to be in the right place at the right time. And I always have people that'll come up to me during speeches or, you know, particularly when I do women's groups going, how did you do this? How did you raise these kids and have this job and this and that and the other thing? And I'd say, I never thought about it. You're, you're too busy 
trying to put your life together to think, oh, this is too hard. This is a struggle. I, this is, you know, you don't think of it as a struggle. You think of it as, you know, what's good. I don't know who this is. I've always attributed to Buddha. I don't know uh, if it was, but there's a saying about, you know, life is hard. And once you accept that, it gets easier. So I think I accepted that early on. And, and so there, but there was a struggle, but I always said, you know, it wasn't a, now I say, I don't recall this big old struggle of me lying in bed saying, I don't want to get up tomorrow because I'm too tired or I don't have money or whatever. And then I spent a couple of days taking care of my three-year-old and uh, 18 month old grandchildren and spent a couple of days. And I said to myself, how did I do this? <laughs> this is a lot of work. But the joy of it is you don't really know that when you're going through it. I think struggles, I don't know that you, for me, I don't know that you embrace struggles. I think struggles embrace you and you just got to go, you know, you got to go with it and you got to figure a way out. And I don't think at the time you're thinking I'm struggling here. I'm struggling. I think you think I'm living, I'm living and I got to live to the next day and do this. Well, see, that just gave me so much confidence. That's why when you pick up the map and the compass and say, follow me journalistically, I always will. So Candy Crowley, thank, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations and sharing uh, so many of your stories and, uh, and insights and, uh, and, and character with us. Well, Michael, you make it easy. And it was really good to talk to you. Maybe that can be, maybe I can use that as a promotional line. Michael makes it easy. Absolutely. <laughs> you do. Thank you. You do. Thank you, Candy. Thank you. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening.